0: The Book of Romans, chapter three, verses nineteen to thirty-one, and you can find it printed in your bulletin. And uh, you just follow along as I as I read it. <coughs> now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is it or is God, the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is a word of the Lord. Today we're going to start a new series uh, on something called the five solas of the Reformation. And I imagine most people here probably have never heard that phrase or don't know what that means unless. It's something that you've explicitly studied. Uh, So let me start the the sermon series by briefly explaining what it's going to be about and why we're actually going to go through this. Uh, You know, every every church has a set of beliefs, theological beliefs, that belong to a certain tradition. Um, No church belongs, is in a vacuum, but all churches are connected to something of the past or something that was taught uh, in the past and handed down. We are all affected by not only our history but our cultural context. And uh, you can usually tell which uh, theological tradition a particular church belongs to based on the kind of creeds and confessions that they they confess or that they subscribe to. And uh, even when churches don't have a confessional statement, usually it's just unwritten, but they do have a certain set of beliefs and and believe in uh, a certain kind of theological tradition. You know, at Good News Church, some of you have done this. Uh, I know not all of you have done this, but when you take membership classes at Good News Church, One of the things that we do is we talk about the theological tradition that our church comes from. In other words, what is the kind of teaching that you can expect to receive here? And we look very briefly at some of the confessional documents that we subscribe to. And uh, we belong to a tradition known as the Protestant tradition. Uh, We come out of the tradition of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, I, I am not a historian, Fred, Fred, our elder, is a historian, so if you have any questions about this period, this is what he's studying, so you can ask him. Yesterday, I was like just pegging him with so many questions, uh, but I think a lot of historians would uh, agree that this era or this movement called the Reformation I- is a pretty complex movement, and there's a lot of factors going on, and so there, there is a danger in oversimplifying this movement to just five simple statements, but I think at the very least, what it does for us is it gives us a simple framework to... Uh, understand or to know how to think about uh, certain doctrines, especially as it relates to our Christian faith and especially as it relates to doctrines that we are supposed to uh, hold dear to and value. So what are these uh, five statements, these five sola statements? Uh, First one is sola fide, which means by faith alone. Second one is sola gratia, which means by grace alone. Third one is solus Christus, which means in Christ alone. Fourth one, sola scriptura, which means uh, according to Scripture alone, and the last one is soli Deo Gloria, which is for the glory of God alone. So, what does uh, what do we believe coming out of the Protestant Reformation? We believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks is we're going to expand or expound on some of these uh, doctrinal statements in each of these solas. Uh, So the natural question is, so why are we going through this? Why are we going through these five sola statements? Uh, Normally, uh, I admit I probably wouldn't do a sermon series on the Protestant Reformation. Uh, But this year is an important year in the sense that it actually marks the 500th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation and uh, you might notice that other churches are doing similar things like this just to recognize uh, the 500th anniversary Uh, so what does that mean what does it mean that it's a 500 uh, 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation or the start of the Protestant Reformation well here's how the story goes about 500 years ago there were primarily two churches you had the Roman Catholic Church and you had the Eastern Orthodox Church in 1517, an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther, he publishes this tract or this work uh, of 95 statements. It's called the 95 Theses, and it basically took aim at the pastoral abuse uh, of indulgences that were going on at the time. Uh, indulgences, if you're not familiar with what that is, it's a ba- it was basically this, I guess, sheet of paper that uh, offered the remission of sins. And I should also say that since then, the Catholic Church has reformed that practice and no longer practices that. But at the time, uh, there was uh, some pastoral abuse of it uh, in order to financially benefit, uh, I guess, certain people or maybe even the, uh, uh, the papacy for building things like St. Peter's Basilica. But anyway, this, this set off uh, events that would eventually lead to this great – this movement called the Protestant Reformation – it eventually led to the uh, the trial and the excommunication of Martin Luther, who, by the way, he didn't uh, want to or try to set off this movement. It just kind of happened. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church, but he got excommunicated. But anyway, this is the 500th year of the publication of that tract. Now, uh, this is not going to be a, s- a sermon series on church history. Uh, I'm just doing this as an introduction, but uh, Martin Luther, if you've never heard of him, he he's a actually a polarizing figure, and to Protestants, he tends to be viewed as this kind of hero, and therefore you often find these over-romanticized stories about Martin Luther. Uh, to Catholics, he tends to be viewed as a villain. Uh, he was character he's usually characterized as, as someone who had this uh, uncontrolled rage and who started this religious revolt against the Catholic Church. Uh, the truth is probably somewhere in, in the middle of that. And, uh, you know, the fruit of the Reformation, it, w- it wasn't all good, uh, not uh, like good things came out of the reformation but everything that came out of the reformation wasn't necessarily good. But I do think a lot of good came out of the Protestant Reformation, especially as it pertains to doctrine, uh, especially as it pertains to doctrine related to the message of the gospel. And so it's just nice to kind of uh, remember that, look look at that and just think about some of the things that came out of that period. A couple initial comments I want to make before we look at this uh, first topic of sola fide. You'll notice all the phrases uh, are in Latin because back then everything was in Latin. Uh, It was actually Martin Luther who first translated the Bible into the common language, into German. But back then, even the Bible was read in Latin. Second, uh, these five statements, uh, they're formed in a historical context in which Protestants and Catholics were in conflict with one another. And so uh, part of it is actually they're, they're designed to distinguish themselves from the beliefs of the Catholic Church. Uh, And third, I should say this, uh, because I do know that uh, some of you come from a Catholic background, Uh, I I don't think Catholics or the Catholic Church uh, would have a problem with faith, grace, Scripture, Christ, or the glory of God. They would affirm all five of those things as well. The issue would ultimately be with that word alone. That's, That's where the disagreement arises. For example, they would affirm faith along with Maybe good works, but not faith alone. They would affirm the authority of Scripture along with the authority of the magisterium, but not Scripture alone. Uh, so the word alone is actually the, the controversial one uh, as it relates to this, the differences, the theological differences between Protestants and Catholics. And again, I said, I, I know many of you have a Catholic background. Uh, many of you have Catholic friends. I grew up with a lot of Catholic friends. Uh, even in where I live, there's a lot of Catholics. So when I just talk to people, uh, and they find out I'm a pastor, uh, they they actually treat me like a Catholic priest because their image of pastor <laughs> is uh, is the priest of their parish. But uh, we have good conversations, and uh, you know it's it's very it's very interesting. I think to talk about maybe some of the theological beliefs of of both traditions. But if you're curious as to what uh, beliefs. I guess distinguish Protestants from Catholics. Uh, these five statements are a quick and easy way to to basically understand that, at least historically speaking. So today, we are going to look at "sola fide," which translates into "by faith alone," and that's actually shorthand for a longer statement, which is "justification by faith alone." When I was in seminary, I had this professor, a uh, church history professor. And he would uh, often say, you know, the Catholic position is actually the default position. Uh, If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, uh, the default position is to be a Catholic, and you actually need to have good reasons to not be a Catholic. And what he says is the two reasons that I have for not being a Catholic, even though it is the default position, is uh, first, papal authority, and second, justification by faith. Now, what is justification by faith? We'll talk about that a little bit, but Martin Luther is usually given credit for making this, this doctrine, justification by faith, popular. Uh, but you do actually see it in uh, strands of other theologians like St. Augustine. Uh, Luther was an Augustinian monk, and he learned a lot from uh, the writings of St. Augustine. But both men were very influenced by uh, a particular book in the Bible, and it's the book of Romans. It's Paul's letter to the Romans. So I thought as we looked at this doctrine of sola fide, by faith alone, I thought it would be very appropriate to actually look at it from the book of Romans as well. Now, Sometimes, uh, I, can, I can already see it in your eyes, sometimes when we talk about doctrine, when we talk about history, uh, it's like, uh, ugh, <laughs> right? I don't want to sit under a lecture. Uh, it doesn't mean very much to us because uh, maybe sometimes we talk about it in a vacuum, and uh, it, it never really connects to uh, our life experiences, right? So here's what I want to do first. Before we talk about the doctrine of justification by faith and why it's important and what it means to us, uh, I want to first connect it to maybe a common life experience that some of us may have. You know, people like St. Augustine and Martin Luther and uh, I'm sure many others throughout history have often struggled with a, a simple yet a very important question, and the question is this. If the God of the Bible is real, how do we know whether he will accept me? If God is truly gracious and merciful, how do I know that God is going to be gracious and merciful to me? And this is a question that many people have struggled with over time, and this is essentially the question of assurance. How do I know? Uh, Assurance is so important, and I I think we all want insurance, right? Assurance. Not insurance. Assurance. Uh, Even in our human relationships, uh, having assurance is is pretty important. Uh, If you've had a job, or if you've been in a career where people are kind of getting laid off left and right and you're not sure if you're going to be next uh, it, it messes you up psychologically doesn't doesn't it uh, you're filled with fear and and usually you want some kind of assurance that uh, the employer will continue to utilize you continue to accept you as an employee but without assurance you you go a little bit crazy I think even in romantic relationships uh, people and usually this is before marriage but people often want some assurance that the other person is committed to the relationship as well. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that assurance, uh, if there is no commitment, then what happens? uh, Dating relationships get a little bit complicated, and the person who is looking for assurance, they go a little bit crazy, right? Uh, Just mentally, it's just just not a comfortable place to be. So why then would it be any different when it comes to our relationship with God? You know, most of us, uh, we have a past, I'm going to assume that's true of probably all of us. We have a past where we did things that we weren't proud of. I'm I'm even going to say probably many of us have a present where we still still do things that we're not exactly proud of. And if that is the case, uh (coughs) it makes sense to ask the question, given our past or even given our present, how can I be sure that God is going to love me and accept me? How can I be sure of that? You know, when I was in high school... I remember I was at this retreat, and uh, the pastor there, he asked, if you die today, raise your hand if you know you are going to heaven. And I know that's a very youth groupy thing to do, uh, but at the time for me at least it was effective because it made me think about my status before God. And I didn't raise my hand because I I didn't know the answer to that. But, you know, I also realized this in retrospect. When the pastor asked that, the way I interpreted that question was this. If you die today, raise your hand if you think you are good enough in order for God to accept you. And I think when we use the language of uh, God accepting us and righteousness, uh, probably most people read into that kind of question, uh, you know, are you good enough, right? And which is why that question is probably offensive to most people. But that wasn't actually what the pastor was trying to get at when he was asking that question. What he wanted to know is how many of us really understood the message of the gospel. Because if we understood the message of the gospel, then we would have the assurance that God accepts us not based on the fact that whether we're good people or not good people, that God accepts us not based on whether we have done enough good things in our lives, but we would understand that God accept us, accepts us on the basis and the work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, to raise our hand at that question, it's not a pronouncement of self-righteousness, but it is a pronouncement of faith. It is a pronouncement of saying, I rely upon not my good works, but I rely upon the work of Jesus Christ in order for my acceptance. So back to the original question, how can we have assurance that God truly accepts us? And the answer according to Paul is this, justification by faith alone. Now the passage that we are going to look at, it is a it's not an easy passage, but uh, it is a turning point in terms of Paul's letter to the Romans. Because up until now what he's basically done is he has laid the groundwork in, s- in saying this that Everybody, whether you are Jewish, whether you are Gentile, whether you knew the law, whether you did not know the law, everybody has fallen short of the standards of God. Everybody, both Jew and Gentile, is unrighteous and therefore under God's wrath. And therefore, we have a problem. All of us have a problem. We have a problem and we can't do anything about that problem. And we kind of see that argument, the tail end of that argument in verses 19 to 20 when he says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You see, our problem, it is so deep that God cannot even accept, s- accept us on the basis of our good works. That was the problem of the Pharisees. We recently went through a series on the meals with Jesus. That's the problem with the Pharisees. They thought that if they perfectly obeyed the law, that was good enough in order to merit or to earn God's acceptance. But Paul is saying the opposite. He's saying even by works of the law, you cannot be justified. In other words, even by works of the law, that is not enough to merit God's acceptance of us. So then how does God accept us? And the answer to that question begins in verse 21 and actually continues all the way through Romans chapter 8. And what he says is this, God accepts us through faith on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. Or in other words, we are justified in God's sight by faith alone. If you have ever read the letter to the Romans, uh, it may have been a difficult endeavor. It's not an easy book to understand, and I think part of the reason why it's not an easy book to understand is because it uses a lot of theological words that we may not be familiar with, words like justification. What is justification, and what does it mean to be justified? Uh, In English, I think when we say justification, justify, and I think when we use the word righteous, we probably think of two different things. They, they, they're they not really related in terms of meaning. Uh, but you know, in the Greek, actually, the word righteous and the word uh, to justify, uh, they're actually very similar. They share the same roots. In the Greek, to justify is dikaios, and the word for righteous is dikaios, and the word for righteousness is dikaiosune, and uh, you can just kind of hear it that It shares the same root. So even when we're looking at our English translation in this passage here, when you see the word righteous or righteousness or where you see the verb to justify, they're actually coming from the same Greek root. What does it mean uh, to be justified? Uh, It's related to righteousness. It means to make one righteous. But again, what does that mean, to make one righteous? When we use the word righteous, we probably only tend to think about it in moral terms. Someone who is righteous is somebody who has positive moral qualities, who does morally right things. But that's not exactly what Paul means when he talks about the righteousness of God because otherwise uh, when God justifies us, when God makes us righteous, it would mean that automatically all believers would be morally superior people. But if you've been in the church, you know that's not the case, right? Martin Luther, he starts to formulate his understanding of justification by faith when his understanding of sin and death, it begins to change. Uh, initially, he begins to see sin as something that uh, we, we do or don't do. It's, it's a moral categori- category. But uh, along the way, he began to see, you know, it's not just a moral category, but sin is ultimately a status that we have before God. Our sin means that our status before God is that we are unrighteous. And from that perspective, the problem of sin is also a problem of status, which means that in one sense it's not about being more righteous or less righteous or righteous enough to be accepted by God, but it's about whether God sees us as righteous people or unrighteous people. It's a matter of status. It's kind of like being pregnant. Uh, You can't be a little pregnant. You are either pregnant or you are not pregnant, but there is no in-between. And so Martin Luther, he begins to understand sin in this way. Now that's that's kind of a hard concept to communicate in our modern age, right? Because the average maybe secular person in New York probably doesn't have this concept of righteousness and unrighteousness before God. But I do think most people do understand what it means to be accepted and rejected. Most people are looking for acceptance of some kind. That's why we work so hard in certain areas of our lives. Deep down we all care about our status. And even if you're the type of person that doesn't care about your own status, it might mean you just don't care about other people's opinion of your status, but uh, you might care about your own opinion of yourself. And what we tend to do when we're looking for acceptance is we try to justify our existence, we try to justify our importance, we try to justify the fact that our lives matter. And you have a certain standard... uh, that either we set individually or society sets upon us, and we want to meet those standards in order to be accepted. And isn't that one of the reasons why so many of us struggle in life? You know, you think about it, if everybody gets promoted except us, uh, our struggle probably has less to do with, right, getting a raise in our salary, but our struggle has to do with, hey, everybody is increasing in status while I'm staying the same. If uh, we are the only ones, if everybody is getting married except for us, what what is our struggle? Well, our status is single and uh, we think that that makes us less worthy than being in the status of married and therefore maybe we feel a little bit rejected. And by the way, if you are not married, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches about singleness and marriage. But I think these kind of struggles illustrate something about this deep uh, desire w- within us for acceptance. And we want... Well, I guess to use biblical terminology we want righteousness right? we want justification we want to achieve a certain status as Paul begins to show us how the gospel works uh, he begins to talk about this thing called justification see sin it makes us unrighteous before God in terms of status and our status of unrighteousness means that God doesn't accept us It means that we're under his wrath. It means that we stand to be judged and condemned. Everybody, right? Everybody. And nobody wants to hear that, but you have to hear that if you're going to really understand what Paul is saying. You have to know that and believe that if you want to meaningfully understand the love of God. Because if you don't understand that first part, then God's love actually becomes diluted. You see, the message of the gospel, it's good news to us because here's what it proclaims to us. It proclaims that God changes our status by making us righteous before him so that we might be accepted by him and get this, even in spite of who we are and what we have done. That's the good news. That's justification by faith alone. But how does God do that? How can God do that without violating his own character, without violating his own sense of justice? You know, in a court, a judge can't just say to a guilty person, you know what, you're not guilty anymore. That would be a violation of justice, right? Unless somebody takes the penalty for that sin, for that crime. So how does God do that? And The answer here is found in verses 23 to 25. And Paul says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through, what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. He writes very long sentences, right? These are like run on sentences. <laughs> There's another theological word in here uh, that you might not be familiar with, and it's the word propitiation. What is propitiation? Well, Paul is basically saying that the only reason that God can justify us, the only reason that God can declare us to be righteous in his sight so that he can accept us, the only reason that we can be made in right relationship with him is because Jesus Christ was put forward as the one who would receive the penalty for our sin. Because Jesus Christ was put forward as the one who would receive the very wrath of God upon himself. And that is what the cross represents. And therefore, Jesus, he receives the status of unrighteous, so that we might receive the status of righteous and be accepted in God's sight. And that's essentially what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 5, 21. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become what? The righteousness of God. It's a change in status, and that's, again, the message of the cross. Now, we we haven't talked about the role of faith all that much, uh, but it's so crucial here to understand uh, because according to verse 25, justification is received by faith. And, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking maybe I'll do a part two next week because I haven't really talked about the role of faith. But for now, let me just say this. You know, we uh, we are justified by faith as opposed to being justified by faith and our good deeds and our works. We're just justified by faith alone. And I, I think the way some people maybe receive that or hear that is uh, we're justified based on the quality of our faith, uh, but that's not actually the case. That's not how faith is used here. Uh, faith essentially means to, to trust in something, to depend in something, to rely upon something. And uh, that would mean that if we say uh, our justification is based on the quality of our faith, that would mean that our trust is ultimately in our own faith, right? And not on the objective person and work of Jesus Christ, But rather, the way Paul uses faith here, faith is the means through which we understand, through which we know, through which we believe and trust in what Jesus did for us. Faith is a means in which we stand and find our assurance and experience great peace and joy. And the reality of the matter is sometimes our faith is weak, right? Uh, Sometimes our faith is strong. Sometimes our faith wanes back and forth. But what really matters is not the overall quality of our faith what really matters is that our faith is placed in the right object that is in jesus christ yeah i heard this illustration in another sermon but uh, i want you to imagine this imagine you are running and there's a cliff up ahead and maybe something's chasing you maybe uh maybe a lion is chasing you right and you're trying to run away from this lion And uh, you see a cliff and there are these three branches at the end of the cliff that you can kind of grab onto. So if you jump off the cliff and you grab onto these branches, it could potentially hold you up and therefore save you. How far you can jump or how high you can jump is not as significant as which branch you grab. If you grab the weak branch, uh, even if you jump far and jump high in order to grab it, you're still going to fall off the cliff. The branch is still going to break. Even if you have a weak jump, as long as you can still grab onto that strong branch, it is still going to hold you up because that branch is strong. You see, what matters when it comes to faith is that we are holding on to the right branch, that we are grabbing onto the right branch, that we are trusting in the one who will ultimately support us and hold us up. See, justification by faith, it's, uh, you know, we we don't always use that phrase. We don't always use that language, but it is always there whenever we talk about the gospel. Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe some of our families operate like this, but uh, some of our parents, they might not always use the language of love. They might not always say, son, daughter, I love you. But maybe for some of us, we, we know it's there. We know that our love is there. And likewise, you know, we don't always use the language of justification, but when we talk about the gospel, it is always there. God makes us acceptable in his sight by making us righteous solely on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ, which we receive by faith alone. And that's good news for us. Let me uh, end by uh concluding with a a couple implications of what that actually means for us. Uh, There was this pastor, Scottish pastor in the 18th century named Thomas Boston, and he wrote a little thing on justification by faith, and he says, you know, justification by faith, it it gives us at least two things. First thing it gives us, which I alluded to uh, before, was uh, it gives us assurance, and the second thing it gives us is joy, okay, assurance and joy. Now, some people will say, you know, Justification by faith, it doesn't seem to give us any motivation to do good things in life, good works, because if God just simply accepts us on the basis of faith, then we don't have to do anything good, right? It's just based, God just gives it to us. But you see, uh, assurance actually gives us greater freedom to do good works out of right motivation because we don't do it anymore out of fear or self-preservation, but now we do good works out of love love gratitude, Good works becomes a response. You see, without justification by faith, and fear and preservation becomes the primary motivator for doing good works, and therefore, all of our good works becomes selfishly motivated. Uh, now, we might have that kind of relationship, again, with an employer, but that is not the kind of relationship that God establishes with his people. Rather, the kind of relationship that we are supposed to have is one of intimacy and one of love, one of uh, father and sonship, one of husband and wife. And the only way that we can really have that kind of love or that kind of relationship is through justification by faith. Second, uh, justification by faith, it, it actually gives us a lot of joy, and uh, here's why. Uh, some of us, we, we may have a lot of guilt, and guilt tends to be the destroyer of joy. Because if you feel guilty, especially in the context of a relationship, you are always going to try to appease your sense of guilt uh, by making it up or by doing things. And you are never going to actually enjoy the actual relationship. Uh, You know, my wife and I, we started watching this show on Netflix. um, And uh, in the first episode, uh, basically, uh, you find out one person has an affair with her friend's husband, right? Right? And uh, you, you find this out later on, like maybe in episode two or maybe episode three. But uh, in the beginning episodes, right, that friend doesn't really want to hang out with the other friend. And you kind of sense that something is off. And later on, you find out what, why uh, something about that friendship is off. But she, she had so much guilt because she had an affair with her friend's husband. And because of that, she could never really enjoy the relationship. You know, guilt, guilt is a destroyer of joy when it comes to relationships. And I think it's the same with God. You know, if any of you feel a heavy sense of guilt because of something that you've done, uh, it's going to be very hard to enjoy God and who he is. And you're always going to feel like, I need to make it up to him. I need to earn his acceptance. But you see, what justification by faith does is it frees us from that guilt because by grace and out of God's love, he frees us from it. He gives us Jesus Christ so that we can be freed from it. And the result of that, the implication of that is great joy. And we are now free to enjoy our relationship with him. We are now free from guilt. We are now free to love him. See, justification by faith, um, it's a wonderful doctrine. And it really shows us how the gospel is applied to our life. And I I do think it's something to be celebrated, even though we don't use that language. And I do hope and pray that God would give us all the gift of faith so that we can believe and receive and accept God's free justification that comes from his grace alone. Let's pray together.